From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll have a conversation about Hunter S. Thompson, the man who invented gonzo journalism. He's the one who wrote the classic book about Nixon, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 1972. Peter Richardson will explain his new book is Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo. But first, Mitch McConnell thinks Trump is going to lose the Senate for Republicans in November if his candidates and his issues dominate the election. Is Mitch McConnell right? John Nichols will comment in a minute. Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced from the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support. The new Superbeats Heart Choose Advanced by Human is now infused with CoQ10. That's essentially like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 ingredients support nitric oxide production healthy blood pressure, healthy CoQ10 levels, and heart-healthy energy with two tasty chews a day. Plus, Superbeats Heart Chews Advance are plant-based, so you get heart-healthy energy without stimulants. For a limited time, get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Chews on all bundles and 15% off your first order by going to RadioBeats.com and using promo code DEAL. That's RadioBeats.com, code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The growing Republican divide over Donald Trump. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, and his most recent book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. We reached him today in Milwaukee. Hi, John. Hey, John. It's good to be with you. Well, how much is Trump screwing things up for Republicans in the midterms? There's various bits of evidence here. The most obvious sign of concern came after The Republican National Committee declared that the January 6th insurrection was, quote, legitimate political discourse. And then Mitch McConnell replied that they were wrong, that what Trump supporters did on January 6th was to attempt, quote, a violent insurrection. That's what Mitch said. That's what we say. And he's right about this, of course. But why would he do it? Well, it seems pretty clear he thinks Republicans are not going to win enough seats to retake the Senate if their candidates go along with Trump and his obsession with 2020 and his defense of the people who were chanting, hang Mike Pence on January 6th. So Mitch McConnell seems to think Trump is going to lose the Senate for the Republicans if he prevails in setting the Republican agenda. Do you think Mitch is right about that? Well, at the risk of entering into any conversation that includes the sentence, Mitch is right, <laughs> uh, I want to I start by qualifying a couple things here okay. and, and simply say that uh, when you've got a 
Democratic president with an approval rating that that frequently falls down into the mid to low 40s, uh, spiking inflation, a lingering pandemic, and a number of other challenges in a midterm election. If you're the Republicans, it's really hard to screw things up. Their advantages are immense, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. let's let's not underestimate that. And so, if Mitch McConnell is concerned, I think you've got the answer to the question right there, right? That that uh, as far as McConnell is concerned, what he would he would like to do is simply put a name with Republican after it on the ballot and have nothing else in play, mm. because. In your typical midterm, that should be close to sufficient. But there is no question that Donald Trump is making this dramatically more complicated. And McConnell recognizes that, and so do some others, but they don't really know what to do about it. This is the complicated thing, because Trump remains by far the most popular figure in the Republican Party, and Trump is going to define who wins the nominations four seats across the country, whether McConnell likes it or not. And Trump is also going to define, I think, a lot of the energy on Republican turnout in the fall. So the what McConnell is trying to do is to keep the party as big a tent as is possible in this circumstance. But I don't think he's going to succeed. I think at the end of the day, the Republican Party is essentially going to be Trump's party this fall. And what McConnell, I think, is trying to do is is to communicate that if they win power, that it won't necessarily be fully Trump's party if they if indeed they win power. At the end of the day, yes, Trump is screwing things up. He's going to continue to screw things up. And what McConnell does may temper that a little, but we have a situation with our media in, in this country that is just so excited about the prospect that somehow Trump is going to be pushed aside. And and I just tell you, I cover politics for a living. I actually go out and talk to Republicans, and I don't see that happening. Well, one of the places that Trump is obsessed with and that we are very interested in is Georgia, where, of course, Stacey Abrams is running for governor and where, you know, Stacey Abrams managed to get two Democrats elected to the Senate just a year ago. And one of them, Raphael Warnock, is up for re-election. Georgia just to remind listeners, is Trump's number one obsession because Republican Governor Brian Kemp refused to declare Trump the winner in Georgia in 2020. And so Trump is backing a primary challenger to Brian Kemp, former Senator David Perdue. And there's big news on that front. The Republican Governors Association is fighting Trump on this one. They've aired a TV commercial defending Brian Kemp against Trump's candidate, David Perdue. It's the first time in the group's history they financed ads for an incumbent in a primary. It's the first time Republican governors have challenged the leader of their party. Is this significant? Yeah, it's significant because you're, you're starting to put the pieces together for at least some extreme right wing, but not Trump Republican Party, right? That they're they're positioning to be something different than Trump. And and remember that Brian Kemp is hardly somebody that you want to get excited about. This yeah. is a bad, very, very bad player. Yes. And so it's not like they're entering in on behalf of democracy and all things good and decent. They are, they are simply saying that they don't want one of their own to be knocked out. Now, they haven't had to do that very often. People are saying, well, this is one of the first times they've ever done this. Well, it's not that often that Republican governors get challenged in primaries. And so uh, it's somewhat of a unique situation. 
it is significant. And Georgia really is a, a fascinating situation in general. A lot of people are going to be looking at the Wyoming race with Liz Cheney as a test, the Alaska race with Lisa Murkowski as a test of how, you know, somewhat of a dissident Republican survives in, a, in this Trump era. Really, Georgia is the biggest test because Trump is active up and down the ballot. He's endorsing candidate for secretary of state against the incumbent there. He's got lots of other candidates. He's got, He's got a, a Senate, Senate candidate. He has a yeah. Senate candidate. Who is sort of falling apart. Those Georgia primaries are going to be very, very telling. And if Trump's candidates lose in Georgia, that's the big deal. It's not the big deal that the Republican governors got in. It's it's what the results of that those Georgia primaries are. And that that could be the biggest setback to Donald Trump, aside perhaps from Liz Cheney winning her primary within the party during this this primary season. So yeah, I do think what's going on there is important, but I would be, again, cautioning, don't assume because the Republican governors jumped in that that's necessarily definitional. Because I will tell you right now, if you went down any street in Georgia and asked, you know, do you, you get excited about the Republican governors or do you get excited about Don Trump, uh, Donald Trump? Oh, yeah. the, the likelihood is it isn't going to be the Republican governors. <laughs> Excellent point. Well, you, you've reminded us that Trump remains the most popular and powerful figure in the Republican Party. He's able to fill fairgrounds with these huge crowds, bigger than any other political figure in America today. It seems like, but there are these polls, and I just want to look at the polls for a minute about Republicans. The polls have been asking for a while now whether Trump supporters consider themselves Republican first or Trump supporters first, and it's been shifting away from Trump. The AP's latest poll shows that 44% of Republicans said they did not want Trump to run again. And on the, well, are you more of a Republican or more, more of a Trump supporter? 54% said they were mostly Trump voters in October. And the same poll found that had fallen to 36% in the most recent, this is the NBC poll. And this erosion was spread across every demographic. They say men and women, moderates and conservatives, old and young. The biggest swing was in Trump's white working class base, which went from 62% saying they were basically Trump supporters to 36% say they're basically Trump supporters. Why do you think this is happening? Yeah, it's a very good it's a very good question. I think there's a couple answers to it. Number one, I think we gotta be cautious here and say, if you're a Republican strategist and you've still got 36, 38 percent of Republicans saying they're Trump supporters, oh, yeah. right? And they're not in support, there's nobody else that's above them, right? Above that, you still got a problem there. You still have to deal with Trump. That more and more Republicans are saying they are not Trump supporters first and foremost is a result of two things. And it's a fascinating and, and kind of perhaps I hate to say unsettling reality. Some of them really just are core Republicans. They always were going to be in there. You know, they feel free to, to, to say that at this point. But another portion of them are actually, I think, moving to the right of Trump, to a more extreme place than Trump is at. Because we have seen the rise. If you follow right-wing media, and especially uh, if you're on the Internet, uh, Trump is, you know, he's off Twitter. He's off a lot of other places. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Matt Gates and uh, Gosar and other people, they're still there. And there is clearly a, there's an energy uh, on the very, very far right, even to the right of Trump within the Republican Party. I can just tell you a quick example from my state of Wisconsin. Uh, the Republican Party of Wisconsin is 100% pro-Trump. They're, they're all on board. There's no question of that. And yet the 
Speaker of the State Assembly recently withdrew staff from a member of the Assembly because that member was so over the top in saying the election was stolen and just, you know, deep down the rabbit hole on every conspiracy, vaccines, everything. This was somebody who was way beyond where even like maybe a Marjorie Taylor Greene is. Well, the guy turned around, announced for governor and had a rally where he packed a high school gymnasium and had, uh, you know, the mat, the pillow guy, Lindell, come in mm-hmm. and had, you know, other kind of way fringe Trump people calling in to support him, cheering crowd. So I do want to emphasize that now the Republican Party, and, and you see this when, when parties go to extremes, that they end up developing sort of a hard line that is even a little more out there, but sees the party as their own. So I guess what I would say at core as regards that poll is, I think it's significant. I think that some of the people who are just core Republicans are becoming more comfortable saying, I'm a Republican, not a Trump person. That's That has some meaning, but it's not defining the Republican Party as you know even a center-right party. It remains either the Trump party or in many cases, something more extreme than Trump. So I think politically, that's what they're going to run on this fall. And uh, what somebody like McConnell wants them to be is simply hating on Biden. McConnell, <clears throat> McCarthy, these people, they just want a party that hates Biden. And they think that in a midterm, that's going to be sufficient. They would love to put Trump to the side. I think there's a number of old school Republicans who would love to put Trump to the side. And yet, at the end of the day, Republicans are going to need that combination of hating on Biden and Trump, you know, infused, even more right wing infused energy for turnout. So they're still walking a very tight rope. They're walking a tight rope here. And that takes us to the question of the COVID politics in the Republican Party and in the Republican primaries. Your book is about coronavirus criminals. That's becoming a bit of an issue among Republicans. We noticed this when Trump was booed in Dallas when he said he had not only received the vaccine, but a booster shot. He told the audience that he took credit for the rapid invention and production of the vaccine, Operation Warp Speed. And as Republicans, they should be proud of that. And he was booed. And since the end of January, he has not mentioned vaccines in his rallies. He's sort of been scared away from what is his one legitimate accomplishment, the development of of the vaccine. So it seems like the anti-vax movement is emerging as a powerful force inside the Republican Party. It's certainly being encouraged by some of the most prominent figures in conservative media and they are a minority in the party, It's the polls tell us, but they are forcing Republican candidates to confront the question of whether it's enough to be just against the mandates or whether you also have to be against the vaccines themselves. The Republicans who are anti-vaxxers or who give a lot of airtime to anti-vaxxers include Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Steve Bannon, Sarah Palin, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's bragged about not getting vaccinated. So you're the author of Coronavirus Criminals. This is kind of a new chapter in the politics of the coronavirus criminals where Trump is not right-wing enough in his opposition to vaccines. Is that going to affect the party in the midterms in the swing states? It certainly affects the politics of 2022. There is simply no question. I have argued for a long time that COVID is the biggest issue in 2022. Now, it's getting competition from inflation. 
when that inflation relates to the pandemic, obviously, or at least in some ways. Um, uh, but COVID is an issue that that neither party has fully uh, figured out how to how to deal with. The Democrats, it, it gave them a tremendous advantage in 2020. I, I think it was a key factor in Joe Biden winning. I think it was a key factor in taking the Senate. And so COVID politics is very, very uh, energetic. It has power. It's also volatile and it's hard to, to manage because it speaks to a lot of people's fears, concerns, all sorts of other things. Now, um, as regards Trump and, and vaccines and things like that, the one thing to understand about Donald Trump is his talent is not to lead. His talent is to see a parade and run really fast to get in front of it, right? That's, that's what he is. He is not a deep thinker about political ideology or anything like that. As soon as he saw that there was a real base in the Republican Party that, that wasn't enthusiastic about vaccines, as you say, he backed off. Now, this is where it gets complicated because the anti-vaxxers uh, and the vaccine skeptics, they are hyper-energetic. They, they, are, they are enthusiastic. They get their messaging out. And when I wrote my book, one of the things I, I wrote, it, there's a chapter on Trump, to be sure, and he deserves it. But I've also got big chapters on Rand Paul and on Ron Johnson and on a number of these other folks. And, and Rand Paul and Ron Johnson, you know, Rand Paul kind of makes his political living now attacking Dr. Fauci. And Ron Johnson is a flat out vaccine skeptic. He, he amplifies and highlights it. And two things that are interesting, that has not hurt him with the Republican base. I mean, even Republican leadership, they, they're pretty enthusiastic about Ron Johnson. They're gonna back him, Trump is backing him, et cetera. But it also gives him this very enthusiastic uh, you know, kind of hyper-militant group that is on his side. That is something, frankly, the Republican Party is playing with fire there. It's, it's an incredibly volatile reality within it. And I don't have any doubt that we will see some primaries this year where anti-vaxxers beat more mainstream Republicans. And the way that I would reference it is, look at the reaction of uh, Republicans in the U.S. to the uh, Canadian truckers. I mean, that became a very big deal. If you listen to right-wing talk radio now, that's all they're talking about. They can't, Ukraine doesn't, doesn't make it out of the conversation. They're, you know, they're deep into the, the Canadian truckers. Well, you know, the Canadian truck protests were this combination of, you know, anti-mandates, there are a whole host of, of gripes. And I think that's how it will play in the U.S. But within that will be a vaccine skepticism or even anti-vax position that I think is going to be very volatile within the Republican Party. And frankly, that's going to have a big impact in November, because if you look at the polling, Americans like vaccines. They do. And they and the Americans are much more comfortable with mandates uh, as regards vaccines and public health than a lot of our media communicates. And so if the Republicans end up nominating anti-vax candidates, which is I think will happen in some places, uh, what's going to happen is you're going to see something like what occurred in 2010 when uh, you had a big wave for the Republicans. But they lost a lot of races they probably could have won, because especially some Senate races like Harry Reid's seat out in Nevada, because they nominated candidates who were so extreme mm -hmm. that, that they couldn't pull it off. And this may actually be one of the biggest factors in November is COVID politics and particularly the, the vaccine politics. John Nichols, his terrific new book is Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, accountability for those who caused the crisis. Thank you for the book, and thanks for talking with us today. It's always an honor to be with you, John. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time to talk about Hunter S. Thompson, the man who invented gonzo journalism. Of course, he lived in that famous fortified compound in Colorado with his guns and his drugs, and he wrote the classic book before that, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. For that story, we turn to Peter Richardson. He's written wonderful books about Kerry McWilliams and about Ramparts Magazine. We talked about them here. His new book is called Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo. Peter, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, we have to start with Hunter S. Thompson at The Nation, way back in 1965, when he wrote his breakthrough piece that led to his first best-selling book. Right. Thompson was in San Francisco. He had been attracted to San Francisco because of mostly because of beat literature. He wanted to investigate what was happening in San Francisco. He was working as a freelancer and he was not thriving. And he he basically wrote a letter to Kerry McWilliams at The Nation begging him for an assignment. And McWilliams suggested that he write an article about the Hells Angels and the motorcycle gangs in general. Thompson thought it was a splendid idea. He rode around with the Hells Angels for a couple of weeks and submitted the article, which ran in, in 1965. And on the strength of that article, he was able to, to get some book contracts. And uh, Hells Angels became his first best-selling book. It came out in early 1967. And who was Hunter S. Thompson before that? How did he get started as a writer? Well, he grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he served in the Air Force and was a sports writer there. Bounced around a little bit. He was in Puerto Rico. He did some uh, foreign correspondence for the National Observer in Latin America. Then he returned to San Francisco and was writing for the National Observer there. And um, he split with them. He wanted to do things a little bit more like Tom Wolfe. He wanted to review Tom Wolfe's one of Tom Wolfe's books. They weren't interested. He wanted to report on the free speech movement at UC Berkeley. They weren't interested in that. So he decided to try some new outlets. And that's how he ended up working with, with Kerry McWilliams at The Nation. My favorite writing of Hunter S. Thompson's is his reporting on Nixon in the 1972 campaign, which, which was glorious. He called Nixon a born loser, capital B, capital L, quote, the predatory shyster who turns into something unspeakable, full of claws and bleeding string warts on nights when the moon comes too close. That's from Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. How did Democratic strategist Frank Mankiewicz describe Hunter S. Thompson's coverage of the 72 campaign? 
Yeah, he described it as the least factual and most accurate description of that campaign, which was very shrewd insight. He really understood what Thompson was going for there and what he achieved. And uh, who gave him that assignment? How did it work out? It seemed like a problematic one. Hunter S. Thompson, at that point, lacked the experience, lacked the access, lacked the resources, and didn't have any status as a political reporter where the other people covering the campaign had been doing this for years and decades. Yeah, he was by no means a typical member of the campaign press corps. By that time, though, he had he had um, written Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which appeared originally in, in uh, Rolling Stone magazine. Rolling Stone was based in San Francisco. It was a rock magazine, but it was always more than a rock magazine. And the co-founder and editor, Jan Wenner, thought this would be a great assignment for Hunter Thompson, fresh off of that success, um, for a couple of reasons. And, and one of the main reasons was that the 1972 campaign was the first one in which 18-year-olds could vote. So that was a natural demographic for Rolling Stone magazine. And Jan and Hunter thought, maybe we can move the needle a little bit if we um, feature campaign coverage from Thompson in this kind of freewheeling style in the pages of Rolling Stone magazine. The book that resulted, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 1972, has become a classic of political journalism. In The Nation, you identified his five most relevant lessons for journalists today. For starters, most political writers rely on inside sources to find out what's really going on. That's why we read the White House Court reporters for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so on. And those people spend years cultivating their sources. That seemed like Hunter S. Thompson's biggest weakness was a weakness. He didn't really have anybody on the inside that he could go to. He also didn't have any colleagues to use as a sounding board or support his work back in the office. He had Tim Krauss, who did a fantastic job and wrote his own book about, about the campaign press corps, uh, The Boys on the Bus. That, that was also ran in Rolling Stone and was a big success. What he did have was a unique opportunity, though. And by that, I mean... He didn't need to cultivate sources he, because he wasn't coming back. So his idea was, I'm going to offer the readers of Rolling Stone the unvarnished truth, as I understand it, not only of the candidates in their campaigns, but also about the other media outlets that were covering the campaign, their blind spots, their prejudices, their limitations. And so in that sense, he was empowered to do something that no one else could do. And it came naturally to him anyway. That's what he wanted to do. And so he quickly turned what seemed like a weakness into a strength. But journalism has rules, and getting the facts right is number one. Accuracy is our highest obligation. And if you're a political reporter in the 60s or the 70s, you're supposed to avoid partisanship and advocacy. And of course, that was not the way Hunter S. Thompson worked or wrote. What was it he said to an editor about facts? Yeah, he said at one point in a letter um, that facts are lies when they're added up. Facts are lies when they're added up. Wow. Yeah, it really means that, you you know, that's it's not obvious that just getting the facts right is going to get you to the truth. That there are some truths that are more accessible through fiction, for example. 
And, you know, he really wanted to be a novelist even before he became a journalist. And I think he really understood the power of fiction in that way. And he blended fiction and hallucination and invective and satire um, into this kind of um, powerful combination along with the hyperbolic political commentary. And, and that, I think, is what made his, what he called his jangled campaign diary, um, probably the most durable and certainly the most memorable account of that campaign. The reigning king of campaign journalism in 1972 was Theodore S. White. He had written the classic book, Making of the President 1960, about Kennedy beating Nixon was a huge bestseller, won the Pulitzer Prize, and then became a franchise. He wrote a making of the president book then every four years. Um, people loved these books because they read like novels. White told a dramatic story about a hero overcoming huge challenges. What was Hunter S. Thompson's approach? You would think he might have pursued something like that because it was so successful and he did want to write novels, but he decided not to go that route. Um, in part because it disguised some of the things that he wanted to say about the political class and about the campaign. Um, he had no um, he had no desire to make these politicians look be any better than they actually were. And that was a kind of built-in tendency, I think, of Theodore White's approach. It made it made the victorious politicians look heroic. And that was never any part of Hunter Thompson's plan. He did admire some of the politicians, especially George McGovern, but he really didn't like Edmund Muskie. He didn't like Hubert Humphrey, and he absolutely detested Richard Nixon. And, you know, when uh, Nixon lost in 1960, White made him look not so good. White actually went back and apologized to Nixon before 1968 for that coverage. Well, as it turned out, um, Thompson's much more critical assessment <clears throat> of Richard Nixon, you know, be looked prophetic after Nixon's presidency went down in flames shortly after the election. Of course, the clearest element of Hunter S. Thompson's style was hyperbole. Nixon is the predatory shyster. That's hard to sustain, especially in a book-length work, especially in a career. Uh, let's talk about hyperbole. Right, hyperbole you do want to avoid if you're a traditional uh, if you're a traditional reporter. It's really the last thing you you don't want to be hyperbolic. You don't want to go overboard. You're trying to get the facts straight and the proportions right. Thompson went the other way with it, and and you have to be careful with hyperbole. I mean, with Nixon comparing Nixon to a werewolf, for example. Yes. I mean, what do you do with when Reagan comes along? You've sort of cut down on your possibilities there. But in the right hands, hyperbole can be really good at lifting a topic, raising a topic excessively to reveal an undervalued truth. And that's what Thompson was going for. He was not trying to mislead his readership. He was trying to get at a truth. But he realized that to hit that mark, he had to overshoot it. And the other key element here is that Thompson always put his own emotions front and center in his writings, which, of course, is a taboo for uh, political journalists. Uh, how did he do it? Well, for one thing, he never hid his own preference for George McGovern from the beginning, even when McGovern was not 
leading the the uh, in the primaries. He was behind Edmund Muskie and Hubert Humphrey. So Thompson was from the beginning, uh, obviously for George McGovern, whom he really admired. It didn't prevent him from criticizing McGovern, but the point was that he was straight with his readers about where he was coming from. And that allowed his readers to, to make a critical assessment of what, of what they were reading. You didn't have to be a McGovern supporter to understand what Thompson was trying to tell you about that campaign. And, and the other thing was that, that he, you think of Thompson as being this kind of confident, swaggering uh, person, but really what he was doing was kind of exposing his feelings here in a way. There, there was a kind of humanity that came out through that coverage. And that took a certain kind of courage. And, and some later readers, including Matt Taibbi, said that was really the key to the success of that coverage is that he was kind of exposing himself emotionally in a certain way, in a way that most readers didn't expect. And I think that made it more moving um, than it would have been if he had covered it in the, tr- the campaign in the traditional way. Your piece in The Nation, Five Lessons from Hunter S. Thompson, seems like a kind of a guide. It makes me think, well, uh, maybe uh, I should try to write like Hunter Thompson. I imagine the same thing has occurred to you, but I notice your book is not a work of gonzo journalism. No, and I really wouldn't recommend that kind of slavish imitation to anyone. Very few people have been able to pull it off. I mentioned Matt Taibbi. He did about as well as you can do, not by imitating Thompson, but he was clearly influenced by Thompson. The thing about Hunter Thompson is he had a long apprenticeship, um, both as a as a uh, fiction writer and as a journalist. He knew exactly what rules he was breaking and why. And I think if you if you look at Thompson and you think, I'm going to do what he did, I'm going to get high, I'm going to stomp on my own accelerator, and then I'm just going to write whatever comes into my head, that is probably the best way to misunderstand him and his achievement. Peter Richardson's new book is Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo. You can read his piece, Five Lessons from Hunter S. Thompson, Wisdom from the Godfather of Gonzo, at thenation.com. Thank you, Peter. This was great. Thanks for having me, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. 
Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. 